This is a Valerie Moss original podcast. Chapter 3 The Tomlinsons Very early in the morning did Judith, the Ernst Weil sluggard, rise and begin making preparations for her drive to Timberley. Accompanied by one of the Barclay girls, she walked across the square to Henderson's livery stable and engaged an elderly bay mare and a light-wheeled buggy for the day. She considered the advisability of taking Jenny Barkley with her, the 12-year-old girl, was plainly hoping to be invited. But she decided against it. Dropping Jenny off at her own front gate, she thanked her so graciously for her assistance that Jenny glowed with admiration and forgot that her hints had been ignored. Tell Thorne hello for me, she called after the phaeton, and Judith nodded without bothering to inquire who Thorne might be. It was a bright, crisp morning, ideal weather for a drive. Indian summer was gone, but winter had not yet marred the road. The gravel was hard and smooth, and the old mare's hooves rang sharp in the bracing air. Trees were naked, except where leaves still fluttered, like red-winged birds from the boughs of maples. Dry leaves heaped the fence corners, and lay thick and rotting in the furrows between shocks of corn. Fields were brown and dotted with fat gold pumpkins and goose-necked squash. Roadside grass and bushes were rimmed with last night's frost. In barn, lots idled mules and horses huddled together in the chill of the morning. And from fattening pens came the squeals of hogs stamping for their breakfast. It was a morning when it was good to be alive and rolling smoothly towards one's objective. At the toll gate, the fragrance of coffee and fried mush suggested that the gatekeeper's family was still at breakfast, a fact corroborated by the appearance of the man himself with a trinkle of molasses on his chin. With true hosier sociability, he commented favorably on the weather and inquired whether the lady wasn't a stranger in these parts. Judith responded by asking how far it was to Timberley. School, farm, or store? I want the Tomlinsons. Then keep right on this road till you pass the covered bridge over Little Raccoon. There's a finger post pointing to the stage stop. You can see the house from there. Sits on top of a knoll, highest point between Indianapolis and Springfield, Illinois. The stage stops at the foot of the hill. And the school? The school ain't on the pike. It's about a half mile south on Little Raccoon. Here's a lane leads through the woods to the schoolhouse. And about a mile farther on the pike is the next toll gate and five or six houses and the crossroads store. Less than a mile beyond the covered bridge, Judith came to the thick woods through which ran the lane to the schoolhouse. At this point, the long hill, which the old mare had been steadily climbing all the way from Woodridge, took a perceptible rise so that when she had cleared the woods, she saw the pike falling away in front of her. And when she looked back, it dropped behind her in the same manner. She was at the summit of the road. But she was not yet at the summit of the land. That point lay off to the south, 
rising smoothly in one of those strange knolls with which the ancient mound builders had adorned this level territory centuries before. At the foot of the mound, timber encircled it like a girdle, and rising clean above the timber stood a large white pillared house. Anyone viewing the southern colonial dwelling with its kitchen of whitewashed logs attached to the main structure by an enclosed passage would have guessed that the Tomlinsons came from Virginia. The first Tomlinson in Indiana had been born in Rockbridge County, Virginia, near neighbor to the McCormick who later had invented a machine for reaping grain. Tall poplars guarded the white gate in front of the stage stop and lined the drive that led up to the house. As Judith drew reins, she felt her brash young assurance suddenly desert her. This was the home of a simple country gentleman. He had a wife who was ill. It was too early in the morning to be paying a call. Turning the mare, she drove back down the hill to the lane she would look over the schoolhouse first. In the whitewashed log kitchen of Timberly Black, Millie moved sluggishly from table to stove, the only Negro this side of Woodridge. Millie was further proof of the Tomlinson's Virginia origin, technically on free soil ever since she and her husband had come out with the young Roger Tomlinson's 40 years ago. Millie scorned all ideas of emancipation as bloodily achieved in the recent war. Of that original young quartet, half white, half black, there were only Anne Tomlinson and Millie left, and they belonged to each other. Hadn't they both buried their husbands right on this same ground? All the proclamations ever proclaimed could not free Millie from Miss Anne, nor Miss Anne from Millie. She was alone in the kitchen this morning, which marked it as a morning extraordinary, for usually Miss Anne's cheerful presence pervaded the place. Without it, slow-moving Millie never could have achieved the preparation for breakfast. And breakfast at Timberley was an important meal. It was not served at daybreak, according to the custom of other farmers in the district. The Tomlinson men had been out and about their work for some time before the big bell rang, and when they came in, it was to sit down to a table at which all members of the family gathered, not only for food, but for morning prayers. There were never fewer than ten about that well-spread table, and seldom was the number that small, for rare was the day that some relative or neighbor or stranger waiting for the stagecoach did not sit down to table with the Tomlinsons. Richard's wife said they might as well be running a tavern, but neither Richard nor his mother would have it any other way. It had been like that in Roger Tomlinson's time, like that it should continue. As Millie wrestled with the breakfast this morning, she could see through the window young Will Tomlinson and Jesse Moffat, who had finished feeding long ago and were washing at the bench outside. Heads together, they talked earnestly as they bent over the wash basin, and Millie knew what they were talking about. Her black face puckered with anxiety. Through this same window, she had a view of the small courtyard formed by the jointure of the kitchen and the west wing of the house. Just beyond this was a well, 
and beyond the well, a white picket fence, which separated the backyard from the vegetable garden. There was a gate in this fence, and two paths diverged from it. One led to the big barn set high on an adjacent knoll. The other led through a grape arbor to the orchards beyond. Between was a good clear view of open pasture and a glimpse of a small frame house. This cottage built years ago by a Kentucky neighbor and abandoned when his wife died of malaria, had been bought in by the Tomlinsons and christened by Millie, the weenin' pen, because first one, then another of the Tomlinson's daughters had set up housekeeping there when first married. At the present time, it was occupied by the youngest daughter, Jane, and her husband, Alec Mitchell. Someone was coming from the cottage now, a small form moving in swift leaps and canters, like a frolicsome colt, was crossing the open field. Millie recognized the runner, even at a distance, and called to young Will. Thorn's coming. Keep a lookout, Mr. Will, and don't let her go into the house. Will lifted his head and looked toward the gate. Already a flash of pink was moving swiftly through the autumn nakedness of the grape harbor. Where's she been? Asked Jessie Moffat. Mother sent her over to Jane's last night and told her to stay there, frowned Will. He flung the water from his hands and dashed after the pink flash, which had darted through the gate and was streaking toward the side door of the house. He seized it at the very edge of the porch and dragged it back to the kitchen doorstep. You were told to stay down at Jane's till you were sent for. Why are you back here this morning? That, the small person addressed, was an alien in this sober, respectful household was evidence in the bright mobility of her face and a certain delicate impudence of manner. Small-boned and fragile, she was nonetheless intrepid. I've got to see Richard, she said coolly. Richard's not here, and even if he were, you couldn't see him. Where is he? Gone to Woodridge, for Dr. Caxton. The pink-sleeved arm gave a sudden twist and slipped from Will's grasp. No, you don't. Come back here. He recaptured his quarry and gave her a brisk shake. I'm just going down to the lane and wait for Richard. You're not going anywhere except back to Jane's like Mother told you. She's got enough on her hands without having you around and keep away from Richard if you don't want to get hurt. She said carelessly. I'm not afraid. Maybe not, retorted Will. And maybe nobody cares whether you are or not. But it would be embarrassing for Richard if anything happened to you. And satisfied that he had given her sufficient jolt to hold her for the time, Will turned to the black woman standing in the kitchen doorway. Keep Thorn with you, Millie, till Mother comes out. Millie said, Get in that kitchen for our paddles to bottom off on you. And Thorn obeyed, not because she feared the threat, but because Millie shrewdly followed it with one more potent I see go and tell Mr. Richard how you disobeyed his orders. Thorne said quickly, Did Richard say I had to stay at Jane's? He not only say you to stay there, he say he don't want to see hide nor hair of you round here for the next six months. I don't believe it, said Thorne calmly. Then, before Millie's swelling wrath could discharge itself, she asked in a lowered voice, How is she, Millie? Is she any better this morning? I don't know. 
I ain't seen nobody to ask. All I know is nobody in this house got any sleep last night, and all on account of you. I didn't do anything, protested Thorn. You don't have to do nothing. Just being here is enough. A footfall sounded in the covered passage, and a small woman came briskly down the shallow steps that bridged the space between the two floor levels. Anne Tomlinson had borne nine children and buried four of them, but she still had at sixty the energy of her younger son, Will. She looked like Will. In fact, she and Will were exactly alike, but it was her older son, Richard, whom she idolized. She spoke to Millie, paying no attention to Thorn, whom her keen eyes spotted immediately. Take a tray into Miss Abigail and stay with her while the rest of us have our breakfast. Is she by herself? asked Millie uneasily. No, Kate's with her. When you go in, send Kate out here to help me. Miss Anne was already spooning firmity into a bowl from the iron pot on the back of the stove. She dropped two eggs into a boiling kettle and forked three crisp pieces of side meat out of a sizzling skillet. Millie muttered, She won't eat all that, Miss Anne said firmly. You must see that she does. Millie's eyes rolled heavenward. She needs food, Miss Anne went on. She's half starved. If she could be got to eat like other people, she would get well. Opening the oven, she added a couple of delicately browned soda biscuits to the tray Millie was holding and gave her a slight shove. There, go on. Get cream and butter from the table in the dining room. And hurry. Millie ambled up the steps and Miss Anne turned to the small figure hunched beside the window. Eyes watchfully focused on the lane, she regarded the child thoughtfully as a problem to be solved. I told you to stay at Jane's house today, Thorn. I have to come back. There's something I need to tell Richard. Richard is not to be bothered today. Anything you have to tell him can wait. Kate came down the steps, her youngest son in her arms. She at least seemed glad to see Thorn. Thank goodness somebody's here to mind Huey. Take him, Thorn, and don't go giving him sugar to keep him quiet. Kate, the second daughter, was married to Hugh Turner and lived three miles away on the Turner farm. Kate was the one whom Anne Tomlinson now called in family emergencies, her oldest daughter Annie having moved with her husband to Kentucky the year before. The family was at the breakfast table when Richard returned with the doctor. They were sitting with bowed heads while Miss Anne, in her son's absence, said grace, rather sternly, as though reminding the Lord that she had her hands pretty full and could do with a little assistance. The two men entering from the side porch waited respectfully until the petition was concluded, then with a nod to those at the table crossed the room to the hall, which led to the downstairs bedroom. Kate looked at her mother and said, Do you think one of us should go in there? Her brother Will said sharply, No, it's Rick's affair. Let him handle it. Her mother said, If Richard wants one of us, he'll call us. Young Will scowled. It's time Rick understood there's a limit to what the rest of this family can put up with. If she's sick and has to be humored, then for heaven's sake, humor her and give the rest of us peace. And if she's not sick, then by George, it's time somebody took strong measures. If she were my wife, you'd see how I'd handle her, Miss Anne said warningly. Shh, the children. Four pairs of young eyes were fixed with varying degrees of interest and anxiety on Will's face. 
Kate's oldest boy, Richard's two little sons, and Thorne were listening attentively. Will rose from the table and called to Jesse Moffat to come out to the barn when he had finished eating. Jesse, who enjoyed his meals and the accompanying family conversation, took another helping of fried apples and lingered, hoping to hear Dr. Caxton's verdict on Abigail. In a short time, the doctor returned to the dining room, took a seat at the table, and immediately began upon the hearty breakfast set before him. In reply to inquiries, he reported that Abigail was coming out to breakfast. Richard was helping her dress. You mean she's reasonable? asked Miss Anne. Perfectly reasonable. My advice is for the rest of you to take no notice. As I've told Richard all along, there's not a thing the matter with her that a new baby wouldn't take care of. The old doctor was speaking to Richard's mother and married sister. But Anne Tomlinson, conscious of the hired man's unbashed interest and the round-eyed curiosity of the children, said, You young folks are through eating. You can go with Jessie up to the barn. The children needed no urging. They were mortally afraid of the tall, black-browed doctor and the vile-tasting medicine he carried. There was no one left at the table except Dr. Caxton and the two women when Richard led his wife into the dining room. The invalid's eyes quickly searched the room, and Miss Anne knew that she had done well to send at least one of the children away before Abigail came in. To the casual stranger, Abigail Tomlinson was a pitiable object. But to the people who had to live with her, she was a devil, or a cross laid on them by the Lord. According to individual viewpoint, even in the full bloom of health, she had been a difficult person. Now, ravished by all the torments which beset neurotic invalidism, she was indeed a trial. She had been pretty at twenty when Richard married her, but there was little trace of beauty in her now. Thin to the point of emaciation, her features sharpened by the ravages of insomnia. She looked like a woman of forty instead of twenty-seven. But she was the woman Richard had married. She was the mother of his children. And for their sake and the sake of his vows, he would deal gently and patiently with Abigail as long as the two of them lived. He drew out a chair for her now and seated himself beside her. Then, as though it were familiar routine, he began feeding her as he would have fed a child. The others tactfully ignored this procedure. It had happened so often before, except for its unusual violence, Abigail's spell was following its ordinary course. Her attacks always ended with collapse and total dependence upon the ministrations of Richard. As she sat now, her eyes on his face as he fed her, there was something triumphant in her look. There was also something of pathos. Dr. Caxton, missing no move of his patient, thought, Damn it, the woman's unhappy. She may be driving everybody crazy, but she's not suffering from hallucination. She's got some real grievance, and damned if I don't believe Richard knows what it is. Wonder what she's saying to him. The sick woman's lips were moving, but her words were inaudible except to the one from whom they were intended. You won't leave me today, will you, Richard? I won't go far. You won't go over to Jane's to fetch that girl home? She can't stay at Jane's all winter. Promise you won't bring her back yet. Eat your breakfast, Abigail. They're watching us. 
I won't eat another bite till you promise. Claw-like fingers gripped his wrist and stayed the hand that was feeding her. Very well, I promise. Beads of perspiration stood on the man's forehead. The thin, tight fingers slackened their hold. The doctor watching saw a look of satisfaction steal over the woman's face. They were sitting thus when a horse-drawn vehicle turned into the lane and stopped outside the picket fence. Kate, who was facing the window, saw a woman approaching the house and rose hurriedly to go to the door. There was a bell on the front door and Abigail had been known to scream when suddenly startled by this jangle. A few minutes later, Kate returned with an announcement more jarring to her sister-in-law's nerves than the peal of any doorbell. A lady from Terre Haute to see Mr. Richard Tomlinson. Richard rose, but not before his wife's thin clutch had clamped upon his wrist. What woman do you know in Terre Haute? None. Who is it, Kate? She said you wouldn't know her name. What does she want? She wouldn't say. You'll have to go see for yourself. For Richard could go nowhere with Abigail's fingers binding his wrist. If some woman wants to see Richard, let her come in here. He looked at his sister and said, Ask the lady in here, Kate. There's no heat in the front room. Quite as though that were his only reason for not going himself like a free man and finding out what was wanted. Judith, waiting in the front room, looked about her with lively interest. It was an unusual room, to say the least. Long, low, ceilinged, with a huge fireplace in the center in which hung a crane and copper kettle. Yet shelves of books flanked the fireplace. A square rosewood piano filled the space between the windows. And on the marble-topped table, beside the family Bible and waxed nosegay, under glass lay a copy of David Copperfield, face down to mark the place. Facing the chair in which Judith sat was a tall grandfather's clock. Its pendulum was still, and no reassuring tick noted the passing moments. Though the morning was still young, the hands of the clock pointed to half-past one. So, like a ghostly presence, was the silent timepiece that she turned her chair to escape it, and saw the quaintest feature in the room. In an alcove stood a great four-poster bed, canopied and neatly spread with a handsome patchwork coverlet. It added rather than distracted from the charm of the room. Yet it was undeniably a bed with a trundle bed beneath it. Judith wondered if it was used regularly or kept for unexpected guests. And then her speculations were cut short by a pleasant voice inviting her into the dining room where there was a fire. What Richard Tomlinson's real reaction was to the unexpected appearance of his chance companion at Macbeth would have been hard to guess from the immobility of his countenance. I don't know if you remember me, Mr. Tomlinson. Oh, yes, I remember you quite well. Miss... Judith Amory. I, I didn't get your name in Terre Haute. Certainly none of the interested onlookers could have accused him of trying to hide anything. I must apologize, Mr. Tomlinson, for intruding. No apology is needed. You've come about the school, of course. Judith almost gasps. So precipitately had her ruse worked. In the presence of his family, Richard Tomlinson lost no time in establishing the basis of their acquaintance. Timberley's school was as good as hers. 
He introduced her to the others, and his mother insisted on her taking a place at the table. Hungry after her drive in the crisp morning air, Judith did not demur, and when a huge black woman lumbered in with a fresh, hot biscuit, she helped herself copiously. Sweet country butter, strawberry preserves, and whole-spiced peaches, delectable in their own tangy juice, were pressed upon her. Now that the nature of her call was established, the Tomlinson women accepted her with the hospitality for which they were noted. Meantime, the hawk-nosed doctor was enlarging upon the subject of the school. He too was a trustee, though he hadn't a child to his name, being a bachelor well past sixty. But he had ideas about education, and one of them was that no woman, particularly a young and delicate one, no compliment intended, had any business teaching a country school. We've got boys at Timberley bigger than Richard himself. It takes a man to lick those fellows. Judith was too shrewd to let herself be drawn into an argument with the old misogynist. She let him hold forth upon his favorite theme, women's total inadequacy in any sphere outside the home, while she studied the women of Richard Tomlinson's household. His mother and sister she dismissed for what they appeared to be, two healthy, wholesome women, secure in their own small world. But his wife was not so easily appraised. This was the invalid who had been reportedly critically ill. Yet here she was, sitting at the table in a rather handsome shawless wrapper, and apparently nothing the matter with her. She was frightfully thin and her color was bad, but to Judith, who had never seen Abigail Tomlinson in health, she did not look at all sick. She looked merely hungry. The discovery came with something of a shock. Then, while she answered questions put to her by the doctor, Judith became aware that Abigail was listening with keen interest to this talk about hiring a new teacher. You see, miss, Dr. Caxton was explaining, nothing can be done until the school meeting. Mr. Tomlinson and I are only trustees, which means we handle funds and pay the teacher's salaries after the district has selected him. We can call a meeting at the schoolhouse and place your application before it, but personally, I think it's just a waste of time. Timberley District has never had but one woman teacher, Rosie McGrath, who stood six feet and weighed 190. And even Rosie wasn't a success. It's my opinion that the teaching profession is a strong man's job, barring female seminaries, which is where you've been teaching, you say. Unfortunately, Judith had already admitted that her experience had been confined to girls. But I don't agree with you, doctor, that boys present the only disciplinary problem to the teacher. I've taught girls who were quite as difficult to control as any boy. Boys may be noisier, but girls are more sly. The more innocent they appear, the more likely they are to set the school in uproar, without even being caught in mischief themselves. Abigail Tomlinson opened her mouth as though to speak, then closed it. Judith went on. I don't believe any school can be controlled by force. If a teacher can't gain the respect of her pupils, there will be no discipline, even though there are whippings every day. But if corporal punishment is needed at Timberley, I can administer it, to girls and boys alike. An unexpected voice said harshly, I think it's time Timberley had a woman teacher. The effect was startling. The last person in the group from whom Judith had expected support was the wife of Richard Tomlinson. 
We've had men teachers for the last three years, and all they've done is whip the boys ever so often to make the trustees think they're earning their salaries. Abigail looked at her husband accusingly. He said to Judith, The last teacher spanked our six-year-old, and I'm afraid my wife has never forgiven him. It was the first word Richard had spoken since his visitor sat down at the table. I never heard of a girl getting whipped, retorted Abigail, though I could name one that needs it. Her husband made no reply. She went on in the same harsh tone. You should call a school meeting at once. Then you and Dr. Caxton should tell the district that Miss Amory is exactly the person we need at Timberley. Tell them how smart she is. They'll vote her in. They do pretty much what the trustees advise. Thus coerced, Richard Tomlinson had no alternative but to promise to call the meeting. Judith asked practically, How soon can that be? Let's see. This is Friday. I'll post a meeting for Monday night. That was three days hence. Judith was not sure she could remain that long at the Barclays. Abigail said, You can stay here if you like. If Anne Tomlinson had extended the invitation, Judith would have accepted. But Anne and Kate had excused themselves some time ago. Judith said, Thanks, but I don't like to impose on anyone. Isn't there a boarding house in this vicinity? This is as near a boarding house as anything you'll find, said Abigail tartly, and Judith wondered what gnawing grudge gave an edge to every word this woman uttered. Perhaps I can arrange with Mrs. Barkley to board me until Monday, said Judith. And if I secure the school... She just glanced at Richard Tomlinson. I suppose other teachers have found board this side of Woodridge. He answered. The teachers of Timberley School have always boarded at Timberley. He held the door for her as she went out, then followed her off to the picket fence where her horse was tied. Four children who had been playing in the yard left off their game of hopscotch to watch in silence while Richard helped the stranger into the livery stable, buggy, and untied the mare. Judith was too annoyed to notice whether the children were boys or girls because their presence prevented her saying anything to Richard Tomlinson beyond a perfunctory goodbye. But as she drove away, she got the impression of children immediately swarming over him, and she was quite sure that the one clinging tightly to his arm was a girl. Stay tuned to the end of the show for a preview to next week's episode. Hey everyone, I'm Valerie Moss, and I'm the narrator for this mystery book, Project EF, as well as producer and director. You can find me at valeriemoss.ca and check out my podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. The show is about eating, reading, and creating. I live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Here's the cast of characters for today's show. Hi, my name is Adam Abrams, and I'm from Vancouver, B.C., Canada. I'm the voice of Old Judge Shane, Tom Stickney, and Jimmy Turner. You can find me at adamabrams.com. That's Adam, A-B-R-A-M-S, dot com. Thank you. Hi, my name is Carol Sin. I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. I will be the voice of Miss Ann Tomlinson. 
You can find me at carolsen.wordpress.com. You can also find me on YouTube and Instagram as carolsen. Hi, my name is Garrett Odell from Fargo, North Dakota, and I'm the voice of Will Tomlinson. You can find me where I co-host with my friend Frankie on the Ever-Trending Story podcast. I'm Jen Davis, and I'm reading for the part of Kate. I am a studio director for Sportsnet LA, the TV channel of the Los Angeles Dodgers. I've been a studio director since 1995 with the first 19 years in news. Sports is way more fun. I am also the director, editor, and co-producer of a 10-episode TV series about the psychology of climate change that will be airing on the NBC affiliate in Fresno, California. All the episodes will be available on YouTube soon. You're listening to Bottom Shelf Recording Talk. Sounds boring. Oh my, yes. With your hosts, James Seabrook. That's not at all what I meant. My brain is going to jump from one thing to another. Editing, mixing, and additional voices by James Seabrook at Two Bodies of Water Productions. Hi, my name is Kylie, and I'm playing the role of Judith. You can find me in my new podcast called Cryptic Soup, streaming now. You can also connect with me on my website, kingmarketingbykylie.com and on my Instagram at kmorgan with two A's. Hello, my name is Linda Moss and I was on my mom's podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. We did a few episodes together of London and Mom. Anyway, I did Thorn, aka Cricket, on Project DF, not known as I'm not telling the real name. <laughs> Thank you. I hope you like listening. Bye. Hey, everybody. My name is Rafe Telsch. I'm from Roanoke, Virginia in the United States, and I am the voice of Richard Tomlinson. You can find me on the podcast Have Not Seen This. Hi, my name is Rain, like the weather, and I will be playing the role of Abigail. Uh, I have a YouTube page called WWE What If, where I talk about wrestling reviews and my anger against some storylines that I can't stand. Music for this show is by Text Me Records and Leviath called The Black Cat. Cover art image by Danny Muller. Podcast trailer and cover art designed by me, Valerie Moss. Here's a preview for next week's show. She was a Hughes, and the Hugheses always thought they were blood relations to the Almighty. She got religion when she was a girl, and it went kind of sour on her. Yet never had she so coveted a position. That's Jane Mitchell and her husband over there. Mrs. Barkley pointed to a young woman in her scarlet hood. It was the same child. Straining a listening ear, Judith heard her plead. Let me go home with you, Richard, please. Disclaimer, Margaret Eckhard is the author of this book. The audio drama is based off of. Copyright 1941 by Doubleday Publishing House, now owned by Penguin Random House, who only supports current authors, who checked all available resources and directories for literary rights agents and contacts and found nothing. We tried to track down errors of Eckhart's, but to no avail. We reached out to the Indiana Library, who houses the largest amount of articles of Margaret Eckhart. They provided us with a renewal ID, R579915, and had consulted directories for her heirs and contacts. However, found nothing beyond Doubleday Publishing House, which was a dead end. We searched extensively for the copyright holders, 
of this book to get permission to make the audio drama, but were unable to find them. And if anyone has any information about the copyright for the book or the rights holders, please reach out to me.